Pardes North America presents Greatest Hits, The High Holidays, a curated collection of premium high holiday content from the Pardes archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to your Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur experience. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. For more high holiday learning opportunities, visit pardes.org.il forward slash events. And now, Greatest Hits, The High Holidays. Why fast on Yom Kippur? Uh, it's always been a very interesting thing. My sense, even you know, growing up, I don't come from a very traditional background, but the vast majority, at least of my parents' generation, fasted on Yom Kippur. In fact, uh, totally, you know, not based on any firm statistics, I have a strong sense that more people fasted than went to synagogue. Right? There are many people who did not go to synagogue, but they would fast on Yom Kippur. Those are extra. Everybody have. I think that's true here in Israel as well. I have the same sense. And what's interesting is it was never made clear, at least, why fasting was, is so important to Yom Kippur. And it got me thinking also about what is the link between the themes of the day. We, it's the Day of Atonement and whatever atonement might mean and, and repair and so on. What does that have to do with, with not eating or drinking? And so what I'd like to do with you today is sort of explore that question a little bit, starting with the biblical sources and then through the rabbinic view of looking at this custom or this halakha of fasting on Yom Kippur and what it might signify for us, why it might be actually important and connected to the themes of the day. If you look at your source sheet, uh, I gave you, in fact, the two places in the Chumash where Yom Kippur is discussed explicitly. Uh, one of them, of course, is the first mention is, of course, in Parshat Achremot, in Vayikra, in Leviticus, after the Torah is telling us, after the Aaron's sons offer the strange fire and they're, they're punished, they're killed in the Holy of Holies, right? There is this atonement ceremony that uh, Aaron is instructed to do. Uh, and part of this atonement ceremony, we're told at the end of the culmination, the following piece, right? That not only, this was not a one-time event. The Torah says, this shall be to you, I'm in source one, a law for all time, chukat olam. In the seventh month and the tenth day of the month, you shall practice inui. Now, I didn't translate that on purpose because that is the key term. Now, I'll tell you in English, you will get all sorts of translations. You know, anytime you look up and you see there are a number of translations to something, you realize that this is a very challenging word. And the problem is usually it's the challenging words that are the central words to the meaning. Anybody want to take a stab? How have you heard Inui translated? Affliction. Torture. Wow, okay. Torture. I heard somebody say self-denial. That's a very, the JPS actually adopts that when they were influenced by the rabbis. Oh my goodness, look what happened to them. Right, affliction, torture, self-denial. Some people like to play with the fact that ayin nun hay is a very rich root that can also mean to answer. But in general, that seems to be uh, the term. So we're going to practice inu. And the Torah goes on to say, you shall do no manner of work. And then it goes on, for on this day, it seems to be like the reason, why are we going to practice Inui? And why are we going to do no work, no prohibited labor? Those are the two components that we're told are at the heart of this day. This day shall be an atonement to cleanse you of your sins. You will be tahor or clean before God. And then it repeats. It's a Shabbat of complete rest for you, and it'll should be Inui. So we end up with these two themes of Inui and Shabbat being linked in the Pasuk because we're told it's a day of atonement. This chart doesn't make any sense at all, but hopefully I'm being clear enough. And of course, the question that emerges, at least, which I'd love to hear some thoughts on, what do these have to do with this? I mean, you can't read my chicken scratch? I can't either, but it says atonement. Atonement, thank you. So what's your what, what's your what's the connection there? What do you think? What does one have to do with the other? Okay, very nice. In other words, there's a sense of by not working, 
that's going to free up time or space to, to work on this. Beautiful. That's number one. Any other thoughts? Especially on the Inui side. What might affliction have to do with atonement? Yeah. Ah, well, already you're, jump, you're a very rabbinic thinker. I like that. But if you notice, the text didn't tell us not to eat or drink. We're going to get there. But right now, it just said this idea of affliction. Right? On the surface, affliction could mean a lot of different things. Somebody used the word torture. Cut yourself. Force yourself to watch bad television shows. There are lots of ways that you could torture yourself. I had to throw in a few jokes. I'm being recorded. So talk to your kids for 25 hours, especially if they're teenagers. They won't talk to you for 25 hours, so you're safe. But, right? So what does atonement have to do with these themes? Now, if you go to the next text, you'll see. And here, the context is the Torah in Leviticus is now going through all the holidays. It's going through the calendar, really. And it's telling us again, mark the 10th day of the seventh month as a day of atonement. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall practice Inui. Now we get the addition of a korban, a fire offering. And again, do no work. It's a day of uh, atonement and expiation. Once again, same theme keeps occurring. Right? The Torah seems to insist somehow. Inui and not working somehow are playing a role in our desire to achieve kapara. And the question is, what do they have to do with each other? Yeah. Well, I don't know what they have to do with each other, but I think it's interesting that one thing you're actively abstaining from, and the other thing is asking you to actively do something for yourself. Well, if that's the case, we're going to see in a minute the rabbis don't go in that direction for one reason, right? What would it mean to actively afflict myself? I agree with you. In other words, let, let's let's pursue that line of thought for a minute. Well, let, let's let our minds go. Let's take what I would say is the way I read it when I was 14. And all of you are way more advanced, so it's not occurring to you. If I see afflict yourself in order to get atonement from sin. Punishment, flogging yourself, right? The, the, the easy, natural assum assumption of this text is that you, the Inui is a form of punishment. And the punishment is going to bring kapara. Right? Generally, we say a person has to atone for what they have done. One way of thinking about that is you have to pay the price for what you've done. You sinned multiple times through the year. Not you people, of course, but other people have sinned throughout the year. And the way you're going to get kapara, atonement for your sin, and ultimately tahara, and this idea of like a spiritual purity, is you're going to actively afflict yourself in some way. That is certainly one way to read the text. And what I'd like us to see now is the majority of the rabbinic tradition did not read it that way, which I think itself... That's true. You're saying you can't harm yourself. Let's assume there are ways to afflict yourself actively. We're going to see in a minute without actually cutting open your body or doing real damage. But the idea that I want you to see, and, and well, let's take a look now. And if you look at the Mishnah, and you'll see how the rabbis defined Inui. I'm in source three. And the rabbis say on Yom Kippur, it is prohibited to eat and drink, to wash or anoint oneself, to wear shoes, or to have marital relations. That doesn't mean fighting and arguing about where to eat. That means sex. Just so we should be clear about what marital those relations are, mean. Those are different. Yeah, yeah, those are different. Uh, yeah. So you'll say marital relations mean, what, I'm supposed to argue? No, no, no. It means sex. Okay? So on Yom Kippur, we are told, the rabbis say, you can't eat or drink. We have to fast. We can't wash ourselves, anoint ourselves, wear shoes, proper shoes at least, and have sexual relations. Okay? Most of us are thinking that list doesn't sound too challenging. The hardest part probably is eating and drinking, I'm assuming, for most of us. Uh, Although we not wearing shoes when I was, uh, after my father died, I suddenly realized in the Shloshim, that for the rest of the Shiva, uh, that wearing simple shoes, which were not leather. Yeah, absolutely. Very painful. Right. 
And not today we have Crocs fancy. Right, right. right. Comfortable shoes now, right? You can get a fancy pair of running shoes that have no leather in them, and you're walking on a cloud, and you can wear leather dress shoes that pinch your feet and kill. But you're right. Halakhically speaking, in their time, let's assume not wearing proper shoes was uncomfortable, especially when you're walking outside. But hopefully you can see we are not at the level of torture. So how would you describe this list? If this is not torture, what do you notice about this list? Yeah. It's not silly, but it's clear in your mind of the things that we think about most of the day. You wake up in the morning. Beautiful. My husband says, what's for supper? And you go. Beautiful. We'll get there. We'll get there, which is going back. You're linking it already over to here, as I said earlier. We're going to come back to that. Hold that thought. It's a critical thought. Yeah. Well, there's an element here of self-denial, right? It's, it, I mean, the whole list. It's all self-denial, right? No Okay, so you're not giving yourself benefit, right? And you're also, you're not, you're, there's a point of denial. You're not doing things. But already we can see the Inui here is basically passive. The big jump that the rabbis made, I think, in their interpretation of Inui, is Inui is not an active thing. Even though the Torah actually says, afflict yourself, the rabbis moved it over into a passive of deny yourself, which is why JPS translates it quite rabbinically as self-denial. It's an action of self-denial, but really an action of self-denial is an inaction. I'm not going to do certain things that I find pleasurable, which changes the whole picture, perhaps. Right? So we're not even thinking in terms of whipping ourselves or hitting ourselves or, act, or doing something harmful to ourselves or physically painful. We are denying ourselves pleasure. So what do you think? Is that Inui? Does that meet does that meet the requirement? Are we really afflicted by these things? Yeah. And it's, it's more than just denial, it's denying yourself the baser. Well, but are you afflicted? When when we fast for twenty five hours, are we afflicted? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You really feel it. You're like, you really feel it. Some people let's if we take fasting off, right, we're gonna agree that not having a shower and, and, and wearing Crocs and uh, not having sexual relations for 25 hours is not, we're not feeling horrible from that. So eating and drinking. So you're right, some people really feel it, especially if you're a big coffee drinker, right? Others, I think less so, right? Our bodies seem to be pretty capable of going without food or water for 25 hours without showing any bad results, right? So the question emerges, what were the rabbis doing? And, and then we're back to the same question. How does self-denial or avoiding, avoiding pleasure, how is that going to fit in with the Day of Atonement? What is the kapara that that's supposed to bring? Right. In other words, I want to go back. If we agreed initially that somehow this act of Inui must be linked to the kapara, to the atonement we're supposed to receive, then the question emerges, if all we're doing is denying ourselves pleasure, where is the atonement in that? Yeah. Well, it's a good question, because what we're used to thinking about how we get atonement is we talk a lot about tshuva, right? We talk a lot about acts of, of, of repenting which we confess our sins and we daven and we ask Hashem, all that is great. But it's not at all clear at this stage what that has to do with this. Because in principle, we can ask God to forgive us and feel bad about the bad things we do on a full stomach too. Right? And in fact, we often do. Right? Tshuva is not limited to Yom Kippur. I, I often misunderstand Tshuva and Tfilah. So tshuva is repentance, and tefillah is prayer. Okay, and you pray to repent. Well, one, some might say that you have to repent. Part of your project is to repent, which re at least Maimonides would say, you have to identify the sin and regret doing the sin and commit to never doing it again. And then you come before God and say, forgive me for what I've done. So they're linked, right? But they're not the same. We can pray without repentance being on our agenda. We can pray out of gratitude, out of wonder, out of relationship. And we can do tshuva without praying, per se. 
we can confess our sins, we can work on ourselves, we can desire to improve. You're right, on Yom Kippur they get merged. But it's important to note, at least in the Chumash, Shuvah is not mentioned here on this list. Now the rabbis do link it, because in the same chapter of Mishnah that, I, that we're looking at right now, the second half talks about Shuva. So for the rabbis, it is linked, it's just a question of how. And that's the question I want to explore. Somehow I'm asserting that somehow this project of self-denial or avoiding pleasure must somehow be connected to our project of getting kapara. And if you want, also our project of doing tshuva for Yom Kippur. And the question is, how? So you'll notice in Source 4, we're not going to do it at length, the rabbis also struggled with this question. How did we get from Inui, which sounds like a commandment to afflict ourselves, how did we get from there to these uh, pr- the, to fasting and the, and the other prohibitions? So look what the rabbis say, I'm in Source 4. The rabbis taught, and they quote the verse, Right? Afflict yourselves or afflict your souls. One might assume that one must sit in heat or cold in order to afflict oneself. So there you go. The rabbis understood that that's how most people would read the verse. Afflict yourself. Okay, I got to make myself physically uncomfortable. I'm not going to whip myself and draw blood, but I can certainly, I can find a sauna and sit in it for three hours. Or I can find a walk-in freezer and sit in there for an hour and a half and make myself really, really uncomfortable. Therefore, the text reads, and you shall do no manner of work. Just as the prohibition of labor means sit and do nothing, so does affliction, sit and do nothing. Now notice the rabbis were very smart here. They noticed the same link that you did between Inui and not working on Shabbat. And they did something very interesting. They said they have to be part of the same cloth, right? Just as this is saying, don't do certain things, this must also be a type of passive requirement. Did you see what they did? They midrashically, meaning they midrashically linked a prohibition, which is by definition a do not do, and they linked that with Inui, making Inui from a do this to a don't do. They made it passive. That is the midrashic move that took any idea of actively harming oneself off the table. In that one little midrashic jump, the rabbi said, why does the Torah keep connecting Inui to the prohibition of labor on Yom Kippur? It must be that just like the prohibition of labor is don't do the following things, Inui must also be an expression of don't do. Whether that's the pshat or not, who knows? But that's the, midr- that's the key midrashic jump that takes the idea of physically harming oneself off the table. But the rabbis aren't done. But say perhaps, don't do. But say perhaps, if one sit in the sun and is warm, one may not say unto him, rise and sit in the shade. Or if one sits in the shade and is cool, one may not tell him, rise and sit in the sun. Right? They figured something else out. How about if you just get lucky enough to happen to be uncomfortable on Yom Kippur? <laughs> you won. The air conditioning failed, and now you're schwitzing. So now you didn't have to do anything active. Perfect! I can get my Inui without doing anything. So the only key is someone shouldn't say, or I shouldn't say to myself, I'll go and sit somewhere where it's more comfortable. I lucked into my Inui. Look at me. I'm so fortunate. I was worried all day how I was going to afflict myself. It turns out I sat in a place where I didn't realize the, the shade was going to end and the sun was going to shine and I was going to schwitz and get miserable. Oh, thank God I finally can schwitz and be miserable and I can get my kapara. Okay? Answer, again, back to the same comparison. It is this with labor. Just as you have made no distinction with regard to labor, so in connection with the prescribed affliction is no distinction to be made. Distinction meaning it can't be based on happenstance. It can't be, it can't be based on coincidence that some people will luck into Inui by having to sit in the wrong spot and others won't. It has to work across the board for everyone. And here the rabbis are noticing something else which I think is important too. Affliction as an activity is a pretty hard thing to pin down. What does each person think is an affliction? What's painful for some isn't painful for others. 
what's cold for some isn't cold for others. It's very personal and subjective. And the rabbi said, just like this is objective, we have a list of 39 prohibited labors. This also has to be objective and communal. So through that midrashic move, the rabbis now tell us Inui is not hurting oneself or harming oneself or causing oneself pain, but it is in fact the abstention from certain behaviors, particularly those behaviors that give us great physical pleasure or comfort. Or in the case of food and water, actually give us life done you know, we can't go that long without food and water. Behaviors. And so we understand how we took torture and physical pain off the table. But I feel like we're still left with the question, which I'm going to ask again. What does avoiding pleasure have to do with atonement or we can even add repentance? Or let me ask the question more practically speaking. If you ate and drank on Yom Kippur, how would that affect your experience of the day? Less time to be spent davening. Less time for davening. So in other words, it would cut into your davening time. How about if you just ate an energy bar? Real quick. But I hear what you're saying. All those meals, right? Okay, fair enough. But how would it affect the spiritual content of your day? I'll say it in an even more provocative way. I have met many people who say... Fasting ruins the spirituality of the day. Because you come 3 o'clock, instead of focusing on the beautiful words of the mafzer, what are they focusing on? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I want a cup of coffee right now. Right? So I've had people say fasting is, is the opposite of giving me a spiritual boost. In fact, it undermines it. So what do you say to that? How would, fa- how would not fasting affect your Yom Kippur? Yes, they eat. People who need to eat or drink or they'll get sick can eat and drink. So it's because Yes, or it's it doesn't have to get quite that far. Even if it, it would it would harm their health, they can eat or drink. Huh? Yeah, they get clear and they talk about consulting a doctor and everything else. I'm talking about for the average person who can survive fasting, but they don't like it. Yeah. It's that you're saying we all know we're in it together. So you're saying it kind of connects us. We all know that we're fasting. Okay, that's very possible. Anybody else? What would happen to your day of all that long davening if you took a few breaks during the day to eat and drink? Huh? You take breaks anyways. This way you could just add an little nosh. And that would be bad for your Yom Kippur, you're saying. Because there's something about not feeling satisfied that's important. Because, let's flesh that out a little bit. What is not, why is not being satisfied important? Yeah? It's a different kind of spirituality. The way you set this up is it, it harms the spirituality. I would want to ask that person what that person means by spirituality. Well, I guess, right. Well, I think they would say it harms their attention. In other words, they would say that, I don't want, you know, spirituality is like a loftier word. I think for them it's more like, I'm a kind of person, once I'm hungry, I can't focus, right? Which is true of a lot of us, right? When we're sitting and trying to get work done typically, or, or, or learn Torah, whatever we're doing, often, look, that's why we don't give you these wonderful, outstanding snacks simply because they're there. We want you to fortify yourselves physically so you can learn Torah effectively. I don't know. So let's take a look. I gave you here a few options of rabbis that struggled with this question. And the first one is the most far out, but I like it because it's very far out. Rabbi Eliezer of Worms, of Worms, I should probably pronounce that, uh, was one of the founding architects of what's called the Hasidic Ashkenaz, the Pietists of Germany, which was a Pietist movement, not to be confused with the Hasidim of Eastern Europe hundreds of years later. This is a 12th and 13th century Pietistic movement, and they were very into fasting. 
and all sorts of physical denial as a way of dealing with sin. And here he spells out why. Are you ready? There are four types of repentance, he says. Repentance of opportunity, repentance of the fence or prevention, repentance of balance, that's the key one, and repentance of that which is written in Scripture. Meaning, what he means by repentance, he means the Scripture provides a punishment. For example, right, if one does certain, uh, violates certain uh, thou shalt nots, uh, in many cases the punishment is flogging, if witnesses are there to warn him and so on. Okay? So now he's going to go through the list. If one sinned with a married woman, and the same woman provided him with another opportunity to sin, and he prevents himself and does not sin, that is repentance of opportunity. Oh, that's a certain type of tshuva. A man commits adultery. He finds himself alone with that same woman another time, and she is willing, and he says, I've done tshuva. None of that for me. That is a level of tshuva because he did not give in to the same temptation twice. Repentance of the fence, right? How does one do tshuva of prevention? This is where he will not expose himself to the laughter of women for a year or more. Because women's laughter is very provocative. Oh my goodness. Before Yom Kippur, now we're all going to sin. He will not look at women, either their faces or their bodies, right? He realizes, uh-oh, I have a real problem with sexual impropriety. Well, that's on tape. That came out wrong. The person in the example has a problem with sexual impropriety. And so they say, you know what? I'm going to limit Right. And a lot of cultures do this. Right. Of course, the men handle it by telling. Well, the, the men handle it by telling the woman to cover up. Right. Because why should we have to work at it? We'll just remove temptation and, and keep women out of the way. OK, that's my own little brief commercial. Right. So. Right. So he says, fine, I have a problem with this issue. My chuva will be to avoid even the slightest temptation. Now we come to the one that we need here for fasting. Repentance of balance requires that if he enjoyed kissing and touching, he should make himself suffer for at least 40 days by not eating meat or drinking wine. Ready? He should measure his physical suffering against the physical pleasure he received from the sin. Notice what he's saying here. We can read the last, we have to read the last one because you're going to love this one. Scriptural repentance means recreating the scriptural punishment for a particular sin. What's the punishment for adultery? Death penalty. So, uh oh. He should therefore, one who cohabits with a married woman is liable to death penalty. He should therefore suffer the equivalent of death. He should sit in ice or snow for an hour twice a day, and in the summer should, uh, should sit around flies or ants or bees, thereby suffering pain as strong as death. I want you to know before we go on, in, the, in Ashkenaz culture, up until the 18th century for sure, this approach to tshuva was common. And people used to write rabbis saying, I did the following things. How many days of fast do I have to undertake to, to, to get my balance sheet back? And rabbi, well, the rabbis would prescribe. They had lists. And people would do things like lay on the ground outside of shoals so people would step on them as they walked in. These are all things. There are stories of rabbis who would sit, put their feet in a bucket of water in the winter until, the, until it made ice around. But, but that was in the context. That I don't know. That's a whole big question about how much the German pietists are influenced by other pietist Christian groups like the Franciscans and others. I'm just saying that this model in Ashkenaz, not among Sephardic Jewry, was a norm of repentance. This idea of you have to afflict yourself literally. Now, why do they think that? And here we're going to, what's the logic? Why is it I need to suffer? Because I have to get balance. If I benefited from sin and I enjoyed it, oh, that cheeseburger was awesome. It was amazing. From this perspective, if all I do is say, sorry, God, no more cheeseburgers. I feel really bad. There's a problem. Any accountants among us, right? What does my balance sheet look like? Pleasure from sin means that I now had a better life, a more enjoyable life, because I have sinned. And that by itself, they're saying, is very problematic. The only way to balance the account is how? I have to suffer 
to balance out the pleasure I receive from the sin. Well, most of us enjoy our sins. That's true. But in this case, I think he's enjoying it, right? That's the problem. And because he's enjoying the sin, so on that level, right, there's a certain logic. If I look at my life and I say, you know, and many of us do, boy, that was awesome when I, before I, you know, stopped doing that. That tasted great or that was so much fun. Or I'm really glad at least I had that time in my life where I ate that because now I can't, but at least I know what it's like. Whatever that is, for Hasidei Ashkenaz, that is a imbalance which is corrected by the, the experience of physical suffering that can then counteract the physical pleasure. Yeah. Ah, some people are saying enjoy suffering. Yeah, some people do. There's a Ramah in the Shulchan Ruch that says if you enjoy crying, you can cry on Shabbat. Yeah, some people like it. Absolutely. Some people enjoy suffering. Yes. Yeah. Uh, do they talk about uh, the sexual part, like not uh, if you have a child or if you have friends or something? They talk about the more sexual part? Yeah, presumably they mean the sexual part. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that they mean that you, right. They, they mean the sexual type. But, but from this perspective, right, we've solved a certain problem. And that is the self-denial and avoiding pleasure lines up with my repentance because I have to avoid or undo the amount of pleasure I received from the sin. Okay, but then we have a problem with the objectivity. Does it, do I, like, is that good? Is that good? Is that as, as being right. adding to my mindness or doesn't it? That's a good question. Number one, how much, and how much does one day really accomplish? They would probably say, well, that's why you probably have to fast for 40 days, right? I mean, you can eat at night, but the, the idea is you would add on. Personally, I don't find this model terribly appealing. But it has, because it doesn't fit with the experience of Yom Kippur of the day, right? It doesn't line up with the, the prayers and the repentance theme, but it does have a certain logic, right? This logic of, I have to, and, and I think people liked it because they felt a direct effect. The guilt of the pleasure of that sin was hanging over them, and they felt the only way to really clean the slate was to suffer. And people feel that today, right? That's not an uncommon feeling. I'll give you a classic example. When somebody goes to a friend and confesses something that they have done, and the friend didn't know about it, but they do, they confess it to the friend anyways, why are they doing that? Well, they want the friend to then say, you're terrible, right? That wasn't okay. And then to forgive them. But why do they need that first? Because a lot of us need to punish ourselves before we can forgive ourselves. That's a very common thing that we do, right? We do all the time. We do little self-destructive things to make ourselves feel better over other things that we have done. We don't always, we're not always aware, we're not even catching ourselves when we do it. But a lot of us have that inner need to want to balance the slate. We can't let go, we can't forgive, we can't shed the guilt unless we feel we suffer for it. It is a, I think, a very human way to respond. But I don't think it really responds to what we're talking about, which is trying to create a structure where the self-denial on Yom Kippur is somehow a tool to help us with our atonement. So I want to go to the Abarbanel, who I think is dealing with this question head on, and he's also relating it to the verses that we looked at. It is explained that inui, I deliberately didn't translate it, is a general term for anything that causes discomfort to the soul. Notice he says soul and not bodies. For this reason, God commands us to afflict our souls and offer a fiery offering to Hashem, right? He's noticing that in the verse, in source two, there was a link between inui and the korban, the sacrifice offered on Yom Kippur. Now notice what he does here, and it's very, very smart, whether you think it's shot or not. This means that we should afflict our souls with repentance, regret, abandoning bad behavior, and nullifying evil thoughts. All of this is included in Inui. Now look what he did. The Inui of Yom Kippur is not the self-denial in avoiding pleasure. The Inui of Yom Kippur is what? It's all that difficult emotional work we have to do in order to do tshuva. 
Somebody have a phone? I think someone has a phone on. Yechaveh, is your phone on? I think it's in that purse. No? No, no, no. Okay, well, someone has a missed call. They're going to want to check when we're done. Okay, so for the Abarbanel, I just want you to notice, it's a very brilliant move, right? He's saying the Inui is not in the self-denial. That's not affliction. What causes the soul to suffer on Yom Kippur? Having to engage and think about all the bad stuff that we've done, right? That is not something we like to do, most of us. Most of us do not like to review and rehash all the ways in which we feel that we have failed ourselves or others, or we have not lived up to our aspirations of how we want to live. That is a type of affliction. So then the prohibition of the rabbinim is not... Hold on, we're going to get there. Beautiful question, because you're saying, wait a minute, Abarbanel, does that mean you're not a rabbinic Jew? What about all the self-denial? Great question. He's going to cover it. Through this, one will offer a firing offering to Hashem, because by fasting, we make a sacrifice of our own blood and fat. The fasting, he's saying, is not really the Inui. The fasting is really a type of korban. And what's being sacrificed? Us. Because a whole day we're not eating. What are we living off of? Ourselves. Unfortunately, some of us, myself, the best example, can afford that. A lot of korbanot. Let's just put it that way. Okay? Through this, one will offer a fire offering to Hashem because by fasting we make a sacrifice of our own blood and fat. As if the verse which says, and you shall offer a fire offering to Hashem, is read as, and you, shall, and you will be a fire offering to Hashem. Not that you're going to bring a korban, a sacrifice. You're going to bring yourself as a sacrifice. This is why the verse juxtaposes Inui to the sacrifice. The benefit of fasting and cessation from labor on this sacred day is explained by the fact that through this process, the soul is isolated to enable it to cleave to Hashem. We know that when the material in us that desires physical things is weakened, the part of us that desires the eternal things, the intellect, is strengthened. So I'm just going to outline for you what I think he's saying, and then I'm going to hear your opinion on it. I think he's saying the following, right? The real Inui is mental and emotional. That's the Inui. When we reflect and feel sadness, it says mental and emotional under Inui. When we feel sadness and pain and regret, and we start thinking about all the strategies we're going to need to avoid making the same mistakes, and by the way, the older I get, there's so much more to regret. Goodness. It was easy when I was 13. Okay, I didn't do this good. Now move on. Okay, so, right? That's the Inui. However, what enables that Inui, right? What enables it is the self-denial, which is a quieting of the physical. Because the quieting of the physical, he says, strengthens the soul. The soul. Because what he is arguing here is that we have a spiritual and physical component to our identities. And what he says is, if you quiet or deny the physical, you will strengthen the spiritual. Because for him, human beings are basically locked in a certain type of duality of material and spiritual. And unlike today, where we are told that we are one, and we'll talk about that in a minute, for the medieval thought process, these two things are fighting all the time. There is a struggle between your physical desires and your spiritual desires. They don't work in concert with each other. And therefore, Abarbanel is arguing, that in order to make the mental and emotional Inui possible, we have to weaken the physical side. If we weaken our physical impulses by denying them, we will give more room or more space to our intellectual, spiritual side. And that's where the Inui will occur. But he's also saying something else, this idea of a korban. I don't know anymore. Inui is mental and emotional. The quieting of the physical strengthens the soul. 
I know. I don't know how you did it, but you did. You can read my writings. The quieting of the of the physical strengthens the soul. Now, in addition to this idea of duality, right, that our physical and our spiritual are constantly at war with each other, he also has this idea of a korban, which I'm going to now translate this idea of self-sacrifice, right? What he's saying is, when I deny myself pleasure, physical pleasure, out of the desire to serve God, I am sending myself a very powerful message. I am saying... Who am I really? What is my, my life really about? Is my life dedicated to serving myself and my own needs? Or is my life given over to the service of God? That's what the, the Barbanel is putting that on the table for us, I think. And you could tie it in. When I deny myself physical things that I want, like food or sex, when I deny myself those things in the name of desiring a spiritual closeness to God, I'm sending myself this very strong message about who I am, what I'm really about. What I'm really about is not in service of my own needs, but I am really a korban. I am really a sacrifice. I am really here to serve God. That, the Abarbanel would argue, I think, is how the, the Inui of Yom Kippur, the self-denial, is meant to feed into what we're trying to do on Yom Kippur. Number one, he is saying we are trying to strengthen our spiritual side in the face of our physical side. And number two, I think he is saying we are defining ourselves in terms of what our real priorities are. We are reminding ourselves we are really not here, he would say, to serve our physical needs and feel physical pleasure. We are really here to serve a spiritual mission, to serve God. And most days of the year, God is perfectly okay with us doing both at the same time. On Yom Kippur, apparently God is saying, I want you to clarify it for yourself. In order to achieve atonement and repair the relationship with God, you have to re-clarify your commitment to what you're all about. You want to repair the relationship? You got to re-clarify what is this relationship based on and how is it going to work? And that, a Barbanel would argue, requires this type of self-denial because it is making a statement. Who am I really? Am I really a spiritual being that also has physical needs and a physical body? Or am I really just a physical body like other physical bodies and I'm all about the maintenance and pleasure of that physical body that I am? Who am I? And the Abarbanel, I think, would say on Yom Kippur, we are trying to draw clarity on that very question. And that's what Inui is doing on both fronts. We are denying ourselves physical pleasure to clarify that our core essence is spiritual. We are making space to feel the mental, the, the mental and emotional stages of repentance. And we are defining ourselves fundamentally as a korban, as a sacrifice. Who am I? I am a being given over to the service of God. Which is a very radical idea. But that's his idea of what's going on here. On Yom Kippur, I am reaching this, this element of clarity about my identity and who I am. That's, that's my job here, is what he would argue. And that's what I'm doing. Now, the issue I think I might have with him is this idea of duality is very difficult, right? Because most of us, I think, have a very strong sense that we are both physical beings and spiritual beings at the same time, right? This whole element of I'm not really the physical or I want to deny the physical part, I think for some of us is very, very difficult and challenging. But I think there is something to this idea, at least that I like very much with this idea of clarity. Right, that you know the famous midrash, which somebody here mentioned already, that we're like angels on Yom Kippur. Right, there's a really a famous midrash that we're like angels. The midrash goes something like this: Satan or Samael, this evil demon, comes down to earth to judge us, and God says, "Fine, you want to judge them? Go on this day and see what they're up to." And he comes on Yom Kippur, and we're all dressed in white, and everyone's fasting, and he comes back and says, "How can I judge them? They're all like angels." And God says, see, I told you. Now, there's something wrong with that, Midrash, right? 
which is also a problem with what the Abarbanel is saying. What's going to happen the day after Yom Kippur? We're not going to be angels anymore. We can't. So what's the Midrash teaching me? The Abarbanel knows that also. We're not going to be able to be angels and be purely spiritual beings, but I think it's about the clarification of what, what's most important to us, which might be a good exercise in Yom Kippur to engage in in any event, right? To decide what our priorities are. Who are we really? And how do I want to live according to those priorities? Many of us, I think, certainly myself, find that when I think of what my priorities are and how I actually live, there's a terrible disconnect where my aspirations about how I want to be in the world and how I actually use my time and how I interact with people does not line up in a way that's very comfortable. And maybe that's part of the Inui, is to reflect on Yom Kippur, at least, what my aspirations are for myself, who I, how I ideally see myself, and then take a close look at how I actually live. Right? I would say for most of us, parenthetically, our problem in doing the work is not that we don't know who our ideal selves are. If, Gesundheit. If I gave everybody here one minute to write down the five or six things that are most important to them in terms of who they want to be, it would take everybody 30 seconds, right? We could all, most of us would have things like, I want to be loving, I want to be grateful, I want to be kind, I want to be sent. Our problem is not in knowing those things. There are very few people, I think none in this room that would say, I don't know if I want to be evil or do I want to be good. That's not our problem. Our problem is not in the theoretical aspiration. Our problem is in the implementation. Because all these other things get in the way. And the Abarbanel would say, yeah, a lot of them are rooted in our physical existence, and therefore we need this process of reclarification. Okay, let's take a look at one more, uh, a process of reclarification. I want to look at one more option, which I am most attracted to, and I think it fits in very nicely with, uh, with uh, Yom Kippur. Maimonides, in his section of law on Yom Kippur, he titles that section... And I apologize for the typo. It's Mishnah Torah, not Mishminah Torah. The laws of the rest of the tenth, Shvitata Asur. He defines Yom Kippur as a, as a Shabbat. And we know he does that because the text did that. The text called it a Shabbat Shabbaton. Now look what he says. It is a positive commandment to refrain from all work on the tenth day of the seventh month. This will be a Sabbath for you. Anyone who performs the forbidden labor and negates the observance of this positive commandment and violates a negative commandment, you shall not perform any labor. So he starts out, the heart of Yom Kippur, according to Rambam, is not to do any labor, just like a Shabbat. Then he goes on. There is another positive commandment of Yom Kippur to rest. Notice that language, by the way. Which? Oh, because Inui, remember, the Torah says, afflict yourself, which is positive. Right, it's, it is translated in abstention, but at its heart, it is a positive commandment. That's the tension that the rabbis were working out. You shall afflict your souls. According to the oral tradition that has been taught, what is meant by afflicting one's soul? Fasting. Similarly, according to the oral tradition, it has been taught that it is forbidden to wash, anoint oneself, wear shoes, or engage in sexual relations on this day. It is a commandment, again, he uses the same term, to rest from these activities in the same way one rests from eating and drinking. This is derived from the exegesis of the expression, a Sabbath of Sabbaths. A Sabbath implies refraining from eating, of Sabbaths, refraining from these other activities. Maimonides here is reflecting a Talmudic passage, which says the source for all these abstentions is because it's all a Shabbat. Now, here's my question. What is he talking about? How many people here find eating or drinking exhausting? I'll have to tell you, I always have energy for that. Always. Wake me up in the middle of the night and say, donuts are here. I'll wake up. <laughs> Doesn't matter how tired I am. I can wake myself up for a donut very easily. Wake me up to go for a run. No, I'm going to go back to bed. For a donut, I'll find the energy. What does he mean to rest? And he uses that term very carefully. What do you think he means by resting from eating and drinking and sex and all of these things? Right? means just abstention. Stop doing them. Not divert our energy towards them. 
cessation. Rambam is defining this whole thing not in terms of its effect. He is defining the whole thing in terms of a stopping. It's all about stopping. And the stopping, I think, is there to create a space. Take a look at something Rev. Cook says next, and we'll put it all together. This is Rev. Cook writing in Lights of Penitence. Every act of wrongdoing must in the end engender illness and pain. And the individual as well as society is exposed to much suffering as a result of this. After it becomes clear that the person himself as a result of his misbehavior is responsible for his distress, he necessarily gets thought to correcting his condition. Rav Cook just puts something out there. I'm not sure we'd all agree with, but it's very, very powerful. What's he saying? Whenever we do something wrong, what's going to happen? To whom? Well, ultimately to everyone, but where does it start? With ourselves. Rav Cook is saying, whether you know it or not, every time what he would say, you deviate, and he's very committed to this idea, we have a, according to Rav Cook, we have a natural affinity towards the good. He's a big optimist, Rav Cook. We have a deep-seated desire to be good. And every time we deviate from that, we feel it. It causes us pain. We are out of sync with ourselves. And once we realize that, Rev Cook would say, we have a natural desire to correct it. A point Rev Cook, I mean, guilt makes perfect sense. We feel guilty, according to Rev Cook, not because someone else told us to feel guilty, but we feel uncomfortable with ourselves because we have not been true to the nature that we actually are. That's Rev Cook. Yeah. Well, repentance of balance, though, is all external, right? It's physical pleasure and physical suffering. Rav Cook is saying our nature is such that we will feel uncomfortable and bad about who we are when we sin. It's an amazing thing. We are naturally hardwired, he would say, to be good. And therefore, when we get ourselves off kilter through bad behavior, we feel it. Just like if we use a muscle the wrong way. Right? Our muscles are designed to work a certain way. If we stretch it too far or use the way we shouldn't, it hurts. Rav Cook is saying, spiritually, we have a similar structure. It is a requisite of human nature to pursue the righteous path. And when a person strays from the right course, when he lapses into sin, then, if he has not suffered a total spiritual degradation, his sensitivity will cause him disquiet and he will suffer pain. Meaning, unless you've hit rock bottom and lost your humanity, every time you behave badly, you will feel an emotional, spiritual repercussion to that behavior. It will linger there. And for Rav Cook, that is the great motivation to tshuva. People do tshuva, according to Rav Cook, because they're in pain. They want to solve the psychic pain that they're in from the stuff that they've done that they are carrying. And it is causing them pain. Now, Many of us, when we are in emotional or psychic pain, what do we do? Huh? Why do we eat? Great. Well, how does it make us feel better? What's happening? It doesn't solve, right? I had a big, I had a big fight with my kid. Now I'm going to eat ice cream. The eating of the ice cream doesn't solve my fight with my kid. It misdirects. It's, it's a pleasurable distraction. The centers in my brain say, oh, that feels good. Ah, oh, sugar feels so good. How many people want ice cream right now because of what Ann said? <laughs> Me. Okay, right? Oh, that feels so good. Well, but it's always sugar, right? It's, oh, it's, it's never, ugh, I feel awful. I have to go eat a head of broccoli right now. Carbohydrates. Because carbohydrates convert to sugar. Sugar is a drug in our brain. It gives us physical pleasure. All the food companies know that. That's where they dump it in. They're not dumb. They know that. Different tastes excite different parts of our brain. They're ahead of us. They know that. They know that asparagus doesn't. I like asparagus, by the way. But, right? So, what, so what's happening then? So we seek diversion because we're in pain. We're in emotional, psychic pain. And, and because we don't want to dig into that pain and deal with that pain and, and learn from that pain, we would rather just have the pain go away. We all do it. It makes us normal. However... I think if you combine Rav Cook and the Rambam together, you get a picture of what's supposed to be happening on Yom Kippur. 
If it's true that we are all carrying emotional, psychic pain from all the ways we have failed ourselves and others and have not been true to our own decent nature, one day a year, we're going to be deprived of all the ways to distract ourselves from feeling that pain. Right? Because for of Cook, feeling that pain, if that's step one to tshuva. That's how you get to tshuva. If you don't feel that pain, according to Rav Cook, your motivation is not going to be there. Your motivation for wanting to correct yourself is because you're, you're in pain, which I think is true. Unfortunately, most of us are only capable of making real change when we are facing real crisis. Right? It is much easier to diet when your do- if your doctor says to you, if you don't change something, you're going to die in three years. As opposed to, I need to diet to look better in this outfit or this suit. The motivation shifts completely. For Rav Cook, real tshuva comes from a place, a sense of, I am in pain right now, and I must do something to deal with that pain. But here, based on the Rambam, all of the normal ways that we use to move around that pain, those avenues have been cut off. Because there's a secession. We are stopping the hubbub of activity we, we, we surround ourselves with, much of our day is spent in distraction from our inner selves. That's just how life works. I'm not saying that like our society is terrible. Not at all. That is how our culture works. If you go to work every day and focus on your inner self, you'll be fired in about six days. Because your boss has every right to say, I don't want you meditating right now. I want you filling out the report I hired you to fill out. Or I want you to build that road. Not be mindful of how the sun is bouncing off of, your, of the, the asphalt, right? Or not to be mindful of the, the glory of God in the heaven. No, no, no. I want you pounding nails into the wood, which is all fine. And even in our relationships with, with our friends and family, most of it is built on something else. Getting dinner ready, getting the kitchen clean, getting laundry done, driving this one here to there, making our appointments. Our lives are very, very busy. But all that busyness creates an incredible distraction unless we're very careful to make the time to look inward. And Maimonides, I think, is saying that's what Yom Kippur does. It's a stoppage. It's a stoppage of productive labor, and it's a stoppage of all these physical pleasures. We have to stop and break that routine. Maimonides, it's a stopping. Stop the routine of endless, ceaseless activity and distraction. And then you'll feel the Inui. You will feel your emotional psychic pain because it's there. By definition, it's there. We're all human beings. None of us have lived exactly up to how we want to live. All of us, I think Rav Cook would argue, are in a certain amount of spiritual pain. It's a very harsh thing, but I think it's true. And on Yom Kippur, we stop all the distraction, we stop all the routine, we stop all the external focus, and we listen to that pain. And hopefully that pain then motivates us to want to change and to want to work on ourselves. And Rav Cook would argue as soon as we take that step, we start to feel better. As soon as we feel it, as soon as we allow ourselves to feel it, see where it is, and want to have it go away, according to him, you immediately start to feel better. But you got to be willing to feel it first. That's the scary part. you got to engage it first. But once you feel it, Rev Cook would argue, it gets a lot better. I want to close with one thing. A lot of us can get distracted by all the davening that we do. The machzor is no guarantee... I'll say something more. I'll say something harsher. The machzor can distract you and will distract you from the inner work that you may want to do. I urge you, as you think about how you want to use Yom Kippur, don't let it become a day totally filled with simply reciting words from the Siddur, for the machzor. I'm not putting down davening. What I'm saying is that that can also be a distraction, a way to fill that void, to avoid looking inward. Try to leave some time, and I think it will change your experience. On that note, yes? What if you know how to look inside, but things don't know if you're 
wait. If you look inside, you know how to do that. But then you have to change things. How do you know where to find things to change things? Uh, I don't think there's an answer. I think, in other words, I think we look inside. We see where the pain is. And we sort of recognize that the pain came from somewhere. And we want to address that somewhere. Whether it's a broken relationship, whether it's a bad behavior, whatever it might be, we realize we want to fix it. But it's never going to end, right? As human beings, we're always going to be feeling like we have failed and also wanting to get better. The cycle's never going to stop. So it's not that there's a resolution. I think it just keeps going. But hopefully, we start from somewhere down here, and with every cycle, we keep cycling upward. On that note, I want to wish everybody here at Mar Chatimah Tova and a wonderful, meaningful Yom Kippur. Thank you for listening to Pardes North America's Greatest Hits, The High Holidays. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Visit pardes.org.il for more ways to learn with us. Thanks for listening.